Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, we have a very special twofer for you. I've, we have, I have so many great interviews in the can and so many of them are time, timely that I'm just going to have to combine a few of them. So this week we get to hear from the great John Doe and Roger Manning Jr. I'll tell you more about Roger uh, after this one. So first up, John Doe, obviously one of the great punk pioneers from X. X is doing something no one's ever really done before back in the early, early 80s, combining punk and rockabilly with Xene, Billy Zoom, DJ Bonebreak. All along, the last 30 years especially, John has had his own incredible solo career. And he's got a brand new album out called Fables in a Foreign Land, which is so organic and raw and beautiful. It's got hints of like uh, Hispanic music to it. In fact, we, we talk a lot about that. He didn't, he's not from LA originally, but he's been so embedded there for so many decades. I was curious what the influence of Norteño and Latino music was on him. And so we talk a lot about that. I have a copy of Fables to give away. We'll talk about that at the end of this interview. We, uh, we get into this album in depth. We get into kind of the recontextualization, I think, of X. Lately, they've been going on very successful tours with bands like Squeeze and Psychedelic Furs, bands you wouldn't necessarily think of when you think of X, but it also kind of makes sense. And then, of course, I had to ask him about Roadhouse, one of the greatest movies ever made. And that's how we kick this thing off. So this is my conversation with John Doe. We'll get to Roger later. Um, we kick it off with Roadhouse. He called me from his home in Austin, Texas. Okay. Okay. So before we get into this, I have to ask, will you please tell me at least one Roadhouse story? Because that's one of my favorite movies ever. In fact, I've seen it dozens of times. I watched it again last night just to get ready. You realize I I had never quite pieced this together before. You're the linchpin for all the drama in that movie, John. When, when Dalton (laughs) won't hire you back, because you're, even though you're Brad Wesley's nephew, that's when all hell, you know, all, everything goes to hell. So will you tell me one story? Because I love that movie. Well, I'll say that you're very in, you're very in touch with your 13 year old self because you <laughs> love a true. movie like that. That's true. And um, <laughs> let's see, driving the the big wheel truck through the, uh-huh. the fake the fake car dealership was one of the most extravagant and expensive two minutes or whatever I've ever been witness to. Right. And, um, and they had like 10 cameras going at once and it was, uh, they were all shooting film. So, uh, and, and they, they built, placed the cars and destroyed them all just in a, you know, a field. Wow. It was on the side of the road. Uh, out in Newhall, 
or Santa, what's now Santa Clarita, California. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just insane. And, yeah. and Joel Silver was uh, maniacal. And I'm, he'd probably take that as a compliment. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, there was only one take of that, right? They only could do one take, oh. so it had to be perfect. Yeah. 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 And, okay. and the, uh, I'll also say that Charlie Paserni, the stunt coordinator, who did a lot of stuff with Burt Reynolds and Smokey and the Bandit and stuff like that, he was, he was amazing. And what he taught me was uh, you don't have to do the stunt. Don't actually don't don't do the stunt because you're taking food out of the stuntman or woman's mouth. Good point. So when yeah. you get thrown through the office glass window, that's not actually you, huh? That's not me. And the and the stuntman who fell off the balcony, yeah, over over rotated and landed on his ankle and broke it in oh, several places. Oh yeah. man! Oh, you man. can see as as he's going over the railing. You can see him bend at the waist, uh-huh. uh, which he, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to go over s- stiff, like a, like a, uh-huh. you know, a board. Uh-huh. And then you, and then you end up falling on the, on the boxes, you know, on the, on the pad, uh, on your back, but he bent. And so he over rotated and landed on his foot Yikes. ankle. Oh no. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you the for indulging the most me. Ex- the the most expensive B movie ever made. <laughs> well, and it's playing. It plays every weekend. I I love it. Yes, it's an yeah, absolute no. guilty pleasure, but it's the best. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. Now yeah. I have to say I've always been a fan of. In fact, I think I've always actually. I was thinking about it, getting ready to talk to you. I think I've always actually been a bigger fan of you solo even than X. And um, I didn't fully appreciate X until I saw you guys live for the first time three years ago, opening for squeeze here in Denver. Mm-hmm. Ah. And, and I remember thinking what an odd pairing, like a British power pop band with a, an American punk rockabilly band that, I mean, I guess they both came, you know, peaked in the eighties, but that's so odd. And then this summer you're going out with the psychedelic furs and it, now I'm starting to think this is like a genius mastermind move to sort of, <laughs> well, it kind of, because these package tours are getting so huge and getting, putting X in the stable of bands available to go out with those kinds of bands reimagines or reinterprets what X was all about. And I'm guessing mm. maybe makes you guys get you guys some, uh, some extra cash here and there to go out on these really great shows. What's happening? How did this even come to be? I, I can't, I can't call. I, I don't, I don't know why we toured with, with squeeze. Cause they, cause they were sort of apples and oranges, but uh-huh. not as bad as when we, we did a tour with uh, the Rollins band, you know, his oh. most famous band and our fans didn't like his set and his fans didn't like our set. So that was, Doggy. that was odd. And yeah. Huh. Well, that was a, that was a great band, but it was very, you know, aggressive and, and sort of like, uh, metal meets jazz. True. Um, and, uh, but psych furs is a different story. Mm. We're both very dark, yep. dark themes. And, um, you know, the psychedelic furs have a couple of bonafide hits, but not, um, but they're, they're very artistic. 
and and they're they're asking for the audience to participate, and that's what X does as well. Yeah, you know, it's you're, genius. You're, it's yeah, but uh, you know, and, and the reason that we do it is because yeah, that's what we do. We yeah. we play and and tour and and you know, X X was always um, a better live band than a recorded band. I think I would say so. Yeah, now that I've seen you. I just, it yeah. just seems like it's kind of entering a new, I don't know, a new category or a new chapter of X's career, a, re- a reimagining of who they are and what they're about and who they make sense with and who their fans are and everything. And uh, I love it because I love all those bands and getting to see you with them makes it even sweeter. Good. Um, yeah. Okay. So I got to ask you about fables in a foreign land because I, um, so it was sent to me a couple of weeks ago and I've listened to it half a dozen times and I, mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. And from the get go on never coming back, it is so like organic and raw. You can hear strings reverberating off fretboards. So many people rushing by. Everybody dressing black Whispers up in the sky And never coming back You killed my mind And it feels like that's sort of, it feels like every John Doe solo album is an attempt to get as raw and real and organic as possible with whatever's available from a, you know, technological production standpoint. And Mm. this one, you can't get any more in the room, any drier. But then I read the press release afterwards and I see it's meant to be that way because it's kind of a, it's a, a concept album from the late 1800s. Tell me what you had in mind. Uh, well, it developed through the songs, okay. and uh, I didn't. I I don't. Um, I don't. Uh, nothing is contrived that I that I do. It just of course it not. just happens. It just happens. Well, not of course not. I mean, when you say concept record, then you th- normally think that it's um, you know some grand plan and and you know marketing <laughs> guy involved mm-hmm. in it or something. True. But this was created on kevin smith uh the bass player's porch mm. and 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 that's the way that's the way we recorded it yes i i think i have been whittling it down and mm-hmm. all these performances are are basically live we would cut between takes but we you couldn't fix a bum note mm. and and so uh you know it's unique in that way well the three of us we'll never have this opportunity again because there won't be, you know, a year and a half of not touring and making a living. And the, I'd say one of the first 
maybe that um, never coming back song when, when that happened, I, I thought, okay, well, this, this is now starting to take shape. I had the song Missouri. I love that. River over ran its banks. Some could swim, many more sank. Farms and fields swept away. That bottom land became a lake. We hung around town, drank and we cursed. All the weather went from bad to worse. voice in Missouri, John. I mean, come on. Those high notes, as I'm listening to that, (laughs) I'm almost uncomfortable for you because I'm thinking, John has to recreate this every time he plays this show live, or this song live now. Can you, but you did it. (laughs) I was amazed. No one hits those notes anymore. Sure they do. Sure they do. Well, not at your age. You did great. Well, well, thanks. I'm I'm fortunate and I've got good good genes and and, um, I try to take care of myself, but you know, the, the way that the songs developed and the time we were going through, it, it was it became obvious that there were some similarities with the kind of loneliness and isolation and, and, and that sort of thing. And, yeah, I've been somewhat fascinated with this with the pre-industrial era because shit was real. <laughs> if, if you didn't if you didn't go, if you didn't take care of business then you starved or, or you, or you lived a, uh, you know, it, it was hand to mouth and, and you had to plan ahead and, and it was, um, you didn't have time for waffling. You, you had, yeah. I mean, you could, and, and, it, and there were just as many different kinds of people then and, and as many scams that you could fall into then as there are now. But, uh, it was, I, I think everyone's had enough of virtual everything. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, we're just trying to make it as real as possible. You nailed it. And, um, a couple, I want to ask you specifically about a few of the songs on here. I think my favorite, one of them might be El Romanzo. And, um, mm-hmm. I, that and Guilty Bystander have such strong, like Chicano, Hispanic, um, influences, which is not uncommon in your work. The father plays the master, mother plays the slave. Children pay the piper, they suffer or behave, suffer or behave. We came into town to watch the ponies race. We spoke not a word when a master whipped a slave. Master whipped a slave. 
trembling inside We turned away from the terror and the fright Terror and fright I was curious, what draws you to that? Is it growing up? You didn't grow up exactly in California, but is it the last 40 years of being in California or what, what makes you feel like that's a genre you want to explore? Uh, maybe a past life or something. I don't know. No. Uh, but, but I, yes, I've, I've been enamored with uh, Latino culture and, and for a long time I, and moving from Baltimore to, to LA in the late seventies was uh was an eye opener. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, n- now in Texas, there's a, a whole nother, uh, version of that and a whole nother level of that. And I was lucky enough to, to have Josh Baca from this band called the Tex maniacs. Mm. They're from San Antonio and they're very traditional conjunto Norteño style music. Yeah. And, uh, Josh came in and just played crazy stuff and cr- even crazier stuff. And Steve Berlin, who was, co-producing and dave way who engineered and co-produced we were very we were pretty uncertain after josh did three or four passes and we thought holy shit maybe this was a bad idea because <laughs> uh, he's a he's a terrific he's he's a virtuoso uh button accordion player mm. and and then i'm like fifth or so take he said maybe i'll just do a one mexican style and i'm thinking like yeah (laughs) that's that's a great idea that's a great idea why don't you do that yeah so uh yeah he he's he's very uh and uh el romanso kind of came to me in a dream just the the name el romanso and hide it away in the unknown Ten cuidado con que tu dices Or I'll tear your heart in pieces He said that he knew what he did not know He told me I thought it would be uh, interesting to have a, a verse in Spanish, so I contacted Louis Perez, who's an old friend, and Louis said, "Sure, I'll uh, I'll see what I can do." And we talked about it a little bit. And I sent him some ideas, and he added a whole other aspect to this character, who's just basically a, a liar. Mm. 
you know, well, he just guess, he just talks he yeah. just talks a lot of shit. If, if you're going to go around calling yourself El Romanzo, then I, I would. Yeah, and and it. and we all know that you can't give yourself your own nickname. You have to earn it. True. <laughs> good point. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. How do you decide who you're going to work with? Because and this was something I was curious when you go back to that first John Doe solo album, um, which mm-hmm. is still so great and it holds up. And there's Tony Marcico on there from the Cruzados, who's I've I've actually mm-hmm. had on here as well as. Tito Lariva, yeah. I love that band, and um, Richard Lloyd, who I had on here too, but it he got he decided after about twenty minutes he didn't like me anymore and he wanted to get off. And he's um, a strange cat. He is a strange cat. I'm glad you said it. Yes, he is. Um, how do you decide who you're going to work with? Is it just who's around? Um, you have a sound in your yeah. head, and you know the guys that can make that sound happen. No, it just happens. Okay. Um, I met Kevin through Xene. And Kevin, usually uh, his main gig is playing with Willie Nelson. And that's a pretty good uh, recommendation. Totally. But Kevin was a big X fan. And, um, you know, he, I've been thinking about doing this folk trio for about five years and, and couldn't, couldn't just couldn't find it. Uh-huh. Um, but then with Kevin and Conrad, uh, Conrad plays with uh, Patty Griffin and he, he's played with a bunch, Bruce Robison. He played with for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, it's just who's around, and and the same with with the songwriting thing. You know, uh, Terry Allen is kind of a new friend, mm-hmm. but he's a great storyteller, and and uh, all of his stories involve, you know, blood and <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and blood and interstate flight and uh, <laughs> you know, things like that, and also Shirley Manson. Um, yeah, you know, Exine and I were fortunate enough to be on a tour with Blondie and and garbage and exit toured with blondie so debbie uh, debbie harry and exine and i were all good pals uh, along with clem and and chris mm-hmm. and uh but w- we hadn't met shirley and at some point shirley said to exine and i or me said we should write a murder ballad and i thought this is like a dream of yeah. course, yes. <laughs> shirley manson asks says we should write a murder ballad yeah. the answer is is should be yes. Yes. So a few months passed and nothing happened. And, and then I saw her at another show and I said, whatever happened to the writing a murder ballad? She goes, Oh, I've got those lyrics. And like, she's <laughs> like, she really, them, you know? Yeah. Just so she sent them to me and I worked on it and we recorded the song with, with garbage Exine and, and I, and, and the band. And it, it was in three, four time. And I had imagined it more as a traditional kind of folk song, like a murder ballad folk song. And, um, and this became very goth and, and, and big. And, and I loved it. It was put out on Record Store Day, uh, I don't know, 2018 or 19. Where 
And, and so I, I just wanted to kind of reclaim it, and I, I reworked some of this, some of the words, and Exene wrote some of the um, chorus uh, about the bees make honey upon her lips. I think. Anyway, so I just kind of reclaimed it, and and, and um, yeah, that's great. I love it. But it's, uh, it oh, I, I know it's gonna. It's it all is organic. Yes, it all just like people, you know. Oh, I this this works. This mm-hmm. is exciting. This is teaching me something, or or makes, or and it's and it's something that that they are into, and you know, like all of the other kind of guest stars, which this one was not, and all the other singers and players that I've worked with, it's just people that you kind of meet and and yeah. you you share something, whether it's Kristen Hirsch or you know Amy have, Mann or yes. you know Debbie Harry sang on the last solo record. Oh yeah, and, go baby, go. What's great? Hanging out with Debbie Harry and having her sing on a record. That's a good day. I that, bet that it you, is. That's a really good day. Yeah. yeah. I was at, I, I've made a list here actually um, on my, in my notes of some of these collaborations with women that I think are especially uh, excellent in your, in your discography. And I wondered if, I mean, there's, you know, like I mentioned, go baby, go this far with Amy Mann highway five with Nico case there's Juliana Hatfield in there. There's Shirley, as you mentioned, of course, Sixteen. And I wondered if, are you predisposed to collaborating so well and sounding so well with women because of the foundation that you and Xene created with one another in X, or are they not related at all? And it's just a coincidence. Uh, absolutely, it's related. And uh, I think I learned to sing. I mean... I learned Xene and I learned how to sing together mm. and, you know, as we, as we grew up, you know, from early twenties to now yeah. and Xene and I share something that that's, we, we it's, it's, it's nonverbal. Mm. If she starts going a direction, that's a little unexpected live, then I just know how to follow her, whether it's phrasing or, or notes or something like that. And vice versa, and, and things change as we, as we uh, continue to play uh, a new song or an old song. Mm. Okay, yeah, it, it, there's just a magic there. I mean, there's magic in your music, no matter who, even if it's just you, especially. But when you can get a 
prominent and special female voice in there too. It just adds an extra layer of pixie dust that makes it all even, um, and it just elevates it. I absolutely believe that. Um, well, especially okay. with, especially with love songs, I came to, to think of it as hearing both sides of the story. Mm, good point. You know? Yes. Good point. I, um, okay. So there was another, I had some, I was curious about how, where poetry fits into your songwriting, because I know that you start kind of started out that way, or at least have always done it. Exene does it mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. When I hear songs like, um, uh, cowboy in the hot air balloon or, mm -hmm. uh, where the songbirds live, these songs strike me as things that might possibly have started out as poems. He stepped out of the bar and into the street when a hot air balloon swept him off his feet. He wondered to himself, where the hell did that come from? But he made the sign of the cross and prayed the kingdom come. Son of a bitch, he swore. Holy hell, he cried. As he and that balloon rose higher in the sky. Is this fate or is it a dream? He hung onto the basket and let out a scream. His partner came running, a pulling out his gun. He took a couple drunken shots. That balloon was too far gone. Here I go, I'm on my way. I may not last another day. I'll be fine, don't fret for me. With a little luck, I'll make it to the Is that how it works with you? Do you have pages of poetry laying around and you think, I, I think I can come up with a melody from this? Are they, do you separate them? How do they work together? The, the way the poetry works for me in songwriting is, is um, economy. You have to make every word count. So you, you have to be sure that you have all the right um, connector words you know because it, it could be with or it could be or it could be around or it could be among or or by or something so finding that and and then some you know i, I don't have pages of stuff but i do have a, a book that i write in and and when it's time to make a record then you look in there and see what's see what you got okay when you uh, and, and Xen oh go ahead oh and, and Xen will yes Xen will just send me send me stuff and, and I'll, you know, the, the rhythm and, uh, or meter of, of certain pieces of writing just lend themselves to, to being a song. Okay. Um, other ones, other ones you can just take a, maybe take a phrase and then start building around it. But it, I, you know, I try to do it intuitively and, and some of the better songs just come all at once. The song down South was like that. Oh, I, I, I love that one. Look at that sky, look at them clouds I hope it don't rain Looking up to the sky, you couldn't stop to cry Darkness every day, they took his sunshine away 
He calls out in his sleep For the soul he can't keep In the deep piney woods He lost all that was good Look at that sky Look at that cloud I hope it don't rain Like it did down south The chorus was words and melody at the same time. And I'll give uh, Texas a lot of credit because there are these incredible clouds that appear in, in, the, in a big sky. And they're just nice, nice you know, sort of classically shaped yeah. puffy clouds. And they're just floating by. I love that. But uh, When I think of poets, I think of people who feel especially precious about their words and the words being just right and not messed mm-hmm. with. They're often their own editors. And so mm-hmm. when I'm th- when I'm imagining you and Exene writing songs together, maybe it's not so much now, but maybe back in the early days when you both had that aspiration or that second side of your personality that was a poet too, was there ever conflict there? I mean, it has to be really vulnerable, I would think, for a poet to give his poetry to his girlfriend or slash wife, who's also a poet, and mm-hmm. say, edit this, fix it for me. That's got to be so vulnerable. <laughs> I don't, I mean, poets, uh, poets don't do that, let alone with their spouses who are also poem poets. <laughs> uh, well, we did. Um, I know you did. That's why I think that's crazy. <laughs> uh, it is, but, but uh, it's, it's not precious so much as, as you care about it. You do care about it, but if someone's going to help you, you know, if you trust them and they're going to help you make it better, then Great. That's okay. one one less thing you got to worry about. True. Even then, I, I don't think we realized what kind of uh, you know how grateful we should be that that we had each other. Hmm. We had a sense of it, but um, we we trusted each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I knew that she wasn't going to do anything that I wouldn't agree with, and mm-hmm. and sometimes yeah we w- would disagree, but it was just like no, I I think that it should stay like this. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, we'll figure out a way to make that work. But yeah, I, I think the main thing about being a poet is being aware and alert and, and willing to stop whatever you're doing to write it down. If you haven't, I, that's, that's my biggest um, uh, advice to anybody is if you have an idea, no matter what it is, just take a minute, write it down because it'll go away. If you don't, you'll think, Oh yeah, I'll remember that. And then, you know, an hour later, you've forgotten what it was you were going to remember. Right. Yeah, that's so true. Um, okay, some questions about X, especially in the early days. I mean, I've always wondered, over the course of that first period in the 80s, your sound evolves, um, not a ton, but enough. And I wondered if, I've always wondered if the evolution of X's sound during the 80s was you guys chasing a muse of your own? Like we, we're not feeling the amped up rockabilly stuff anymore. We want to get Michael Wagner in here to kind of, you know, do more of like a hard rock record.
That, that was a huge mistake. Was it? Okay, I won. Absolutely. That's all right. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, giant mistake. We didn't, we, we sort of, I mean, I wrote about this in, in the second book that mm-hmm. about L.A. punk rock or L.A. music. We just started believing our own hype. Everybody said, oh, you're going to be the next big thing. And we thought, well, maybe we don't know what that should sound like. Mm-hmm. And we've done four records with Ray, so Ray Manzarek, so... Mm-hmm maybe we need to change things up. And we did a, just on a whim, did a version of wild thing. And Michael Wagner was pretty fun to work with. And it was pretty loose. Cause that song is pretty loose anyway. Then we started working on a full record and <laughs> Michael Wagner being very German, uh, like charted out every drum fill and every thing. And, and we did a demo that was like the entire record. Mm. quote demo but it was uh-huh. everything so there was then okay now it's time to do the real record it's like what <laughs> okay so there wasn't much um spontaneity and i think okay. that's important because you know like to compare that and this new record they're like two different uh, completely complete different animals. animals yeah yeah so um we were just trying to document what was going on okay you know lyrically yeah. musically and and as the sound evolved say from wild gift to to under the big black sun Mm -hmm. and then under the big black sun into more fun in the new world it was just what we had grown up with and we thought oh we can we can pull this influence in in here we can do come back to me or true love part two or something like that Because, and and still call it punk rock, because we couldn't, that's where we came from. So, 
Yeah. And okay. I'm, I'm proud of that, of, of that, uh, the, the way that we could make a hybrid. Yeah. Of Did different you, sizes. Were you under any kind of pressure about selling out like so many in the punk world were? I had Jack Grisham on here from TSOL last yeah. year. He's just one of the best personalities in rock. And he just basically a, says, I don't care, you know? <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> yeah. He's his own man, you know? He puts out like a yeah. synth pop album around that time, you know? And he's like, yeah. this is, that's my version of punk rock. Are you feeling pressure to, you know, stay within that, that, that group? Were, were we? Were we? Uh, no. Okay. Because, you know, people said that we sold out when we signed with Slash Records. Oh, well, come on. <laughs> so I was like, okay, you got to check yourself because, yeah. you know, Slash Records is no big deal. No. Um, even though they, they, you know, recorded some terrific records and Bob Biggs was a, was all about art. He was all about making something that was going to be, that was going to, that was going to change culture and, and uh, bring people together. So, uh, yeah, I, okay. I had no interest we had no interest in, you know, making cassettes and selling them out of the trunk of our car or giving, sure. them, giving them away. And, you know, that's where like Fugazi and the DC scene uh, took that element of punk rock and amplified it and, you know, made that their, you know, a, a tent pole made it say, you know, that that was, that was part of their flag and good for them. Yeah, you know, that was yeah. that was cool. I I, yeah. I support that, and sure. we were populist in that everybody should be included, and we didn't like you know any of the neo Nazi shit and mm -hmm. and uh, you know homophobic stuff. That wasn't that wasn't part of the deal. Yeah, um, yeah. it never was. But uh, and you know Rollins, who you know Black Flag was was accused of a lot of that, but Henry never had anything to do with that. No, yeah. I rewatched Decline of Western Civilization last night again to get okay. ready to talk to you. <laughs> I'd seen it once before years ago, but it had been a while mm -hmm. and I thought I should refresh it. First of all, do you still have the FTW? Uh, was that, were you giving yourself a tattoo or was that somebody else? Uh, I was giving a tattoo to Top Jimmy. Okay. The um, FTW? No, I think that was um, Kit, our, okay. one of our roadies. Okay. It was giving that to himself. Uh, yeah, I have I a couple thinking, of homemade. I have a couple of homemade tattoos. I bet you do. You were good at yeah. that. I, I remember seeing the FTW this time and thinking, "What does that stand for? For the win?" That's what uh, <laughs> I think. But it's no. This means fuck the world. Oh, sure, sure, sure. We're talking about punks here. Back in the seventy nine. Well, was okay, uh, and and I we found out the which we embraced. It, it came from um, I think World War Two that it was FTA, which was fuck the army. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, and then sense. after they got out of the army, that it was like, you know, the bikers <laughs> and stuff like that. It's like, fuck the world. But, you know, we, you know, we supported the, you know, anti-establishment. Still, yeah. still do. Yeah. Still do. Good. Good for you. Um, you know, when you talk about believing your own hype, that you're the next best thing or next big thing, I gotta be honest. I I've had, like I said, I've talked to the guys from the Cruzados, Lone Justice, I think about bands like the Plimsolls, these, these mm -hmm. peers of yours, but as much as I love all of you guys, I don't know who, what expectations were there? Did they expect you to have like multiple top 40 hits and sell millions of 
albums because none of you feel like the kind of band that would have done that. But was that the expectation at the time? And that's not a knock on you. It's just your bands like mm-hmm. yours don't go mainstream, you know? Right. No, we're we're still a little too weird for mainstream. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. I think Electra thought of us as a an art project. As mm, they sense. thought of us as a and they were kind of um shamed into into signing us. Mm-hmm. You know, we we sold out the Greek theater, which is I think around seven thousand people in LA when we were signed to slash records after we had put out wild gift. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, what? And you're, you're signing other bands that, that can't get arrested. Mm-hmm. And here's a band in your own backyard that is selling out a 7,000 seat yeah. venue. So I think that's why they signed us. And, and then they, they treated us like, like, Oh, don't, don't mess with the artists. You know, they're, you know, don't tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. If they, if there would have been, one person with any kind of, uh, you know, skill at, at, uh, marketing or A&R or something, you know, we were reasonably good looking and but they didn't, they didn't. And the, and to be honest, you know, we didn't have maybe the song or, uh, you know, we didn't have a song like the pretenders or like Blondie or, or even Devo or something like that. So yeah, that's why we probably won't get in the rock and roll hall of fame, but the, yeah. but the, uh, but the go-go's, should and the go-go should have been and i'm glad they are me too me too yeah. well and i i don't know i i think at least a nomination for you guys should be coming one of these days i don't know about getting in but i think a nomination yeah, <laughs> i don't th- i don't think well yon winner has anything to do with it <laughs> i don't <laughs> no, understand I, that guy I, I've, well i you know i yeah. think he just loves um classic rock and yes. good for him that's right that's right yeah. Okay, I have a couple of questions for you. Number one, um, when I this is a super super nerdy question, but when I was li- when I listened to Los Angeles, and I listened specifically to the song "Sex and Dying in High Society," there's mm-hmm. a there's a synth line going through that song. Reminds yes. me a little bit of "Love Will Tear Us Apart" by uh, Joy Division. Yeah. 
and it's the, okay. it, it's out of nowhere. It's nothing else. There, you're not going to hear a synth line and anything else from X around that era. Yeah. Whose decision yeah. was that? Was that Ray? Was that you guys? Why? How did it get there? It was Ray, and I don't know. It seemed like okay, whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> Why not? Uh-huh. Well, it's a nice accent. It's just out of character, and so I I like it. I just wondered who thought of it. Yeah, it was Ray. Okay, but and I give then, Ray I give Ray a lot of credit for choosing the songs on that record because oh, we really? had several. We had yeah, we had several other songs like um, Adult Books. Desperate, I'm coming over. Songs that that were on Wild Gift, yeah. And he and he he chose the nine songs that are on Los Angeles. How amazing must that have felt for you? I, I, are you aware of this? That like rock royalty has taken you under his wing and tried hell to make yeah. hacks. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah, I was nervous as hell when when we <laughs> met him at the whiskey and when he came to a rehearsal to, to see if he could, you know, if he wanted to produce us and yeah, it was a, for, for Xane and I, especially because we were big doors fans, mm-hmm. it was, um, very big validation. Mm-hmm. What a gift, especially to a young band like that, just starting out for him, a guy like him to see something in you and want to make it flourish. That's a miracle. That's really he great. Said, well, yeah, he he saw the the connection that we had, and that the scene had w- the between the bands and the and the audience. Good point. Which there wasn't there wasn't much division between because usually a third of the audience was also in a band. Good point. Um, okay, one other thing I want to can you tell me the wild thing story because this is you know this this is an oddity in X's musical career. That your version of Wild Thing, which is kind of an odd cover to have a band like X to have done in the first place, to now mm-hmm. be an anthem in every sports stadium, thanks to Major League.
Do you ha- would you uh, ever have guessed? How did this happen? I, I'm pretty sure you don't get paid every time it gets played, right? No, no, no. But but we got paid for it being in the movies. Okay, pretty, that's good. Pretty well. You know, we did it because Exene had a 1968 Cougar uh, white with a black vinyl top. It was a hot motherfucking car. <laughs> And she was driving it around one day and heard Wild Thing on the radio and thought, oh, we should do it. Why don't we do a cover of that? Sure, it'd be fun. And then who knows how it got put into Wild, into Major League. It just did. And we thought, great, let's do it. Pay me. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And now it still lives. More people, they may not know that's that's you. But more people probably know that song than anything else you've done. Oh, yeah. Is that, sure. is that odd? <laughs> That's very like odd. Stadiums full of people. It's odd. Anyway. Um, okay. One more song I wanted to ask you about. Golden State. The version mm-hmm. with Kathleen Edwards, who I also love, is so beautiful. And then there's this mm. other version with Eddie Vedder and Corin Tucker. Whose yes. idea was it to do the second version? Why? What made you think Kathleen was the right partner? She was. What made her what made you think of Kathleen in the first place? Tell me how this song happened. I didn't intend on having a, another singer on the song originally. And I did a, a benefit for a drug rehab. Um, and, and everyone did, uh, everyone did Graham Parsons songs mm. and it was big. Nora Jones and Keith Richards were the, were the main, you know, people that made it happen. We did two shows, one in Santa Barbara, one in LA, and it was great. And, Kathleen, I, I, she asked me if she could sing on, um, or somebody suggested it. I don't remember exactly how it happened on, uh, we'll sweep out the ashes. Uh, and, um, I just love the way she sang. I, I, I really liked that first record of hers failure. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as we were making golden state, we thought let's do it. Um, Ed, really respond Eddie Vedder really responded to this to the song and loved it and said oh my god that's such a great love song and I and he I can I do it and he started doing it when he would do some solo tours Mm. 
And I was, of course, really flattered. And, you know, X toured with Pearl Jam. So Ed was a pal. And then um, I guess he and Corin Tucker, you know, knew each other mm-hmm. for a long time. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's a great version. Oh, and, and we, great. you know, kind of uh, reworked some of the, I think they used our original track. It sounds and like then, they might have, yeah. Yeah. And and then we, we kind of put another acoustic guitar on it, made it a little folkier and uh, yeah, it's a good song. That's, that's one yeah. song that I'm, I'm proud of and people, all, all kinds of people respond to that. Yeah. You have a lot of classics in there, John. It's so much good stuff. Well, okay. So you're going to tour a little bit for uh, Fables in a Foreign Land. I live in Denver. I don't think you're coming through here, but I did see. Uh, I will. Yes, I okay. will. Okay. Oh, good. I okay. I can't wait. I, um, I love, this is, I feel like I, I feel like it sounds like I'm blowing smoke, but this one might be my favorite John Doe solo album. I really love the first one and I've always loved Keeper, but I think this one might overtake both of them. So thank you for putting it out in the world because it's fantastic. I totally appreciate that. You bet. Um, I don't, I don't say that. um, I'm not just saying that to, because you have been nice to me. Uh, I'm saying it because that's (laughs) kind of the point of, of making records is is you, you know, you want to express yourself, but you also want to connect with people and give them a, you know, something else to, enjoy or you know live with yeah and yeah cool well thank you well thanks john all right there you have it john doe i love that guy such a straight shooter both these guys are straight shooters they tell it to you like it is that's why i thought it made sense to put them together i love these two now as everyone knows if you want a copy of the fables in a foreign land cd you just have to be a patreon uh, supporter two bucks a month Set it and forget it. Put you in the running for all swag that I ever have to give out. I will um, announce a winner. If you want a copy, you'll have to answer like a trivia question, basically, on Patreon. And I will randomly select a winner on Sunday and let that person know. Go check this album out. I hope you heard some things you like. I love this album. It probably is my favorite John Doe solo album so far. Now, on to Roger Manning. Roger has been a... Well, I don't think anyone quite sees music like Roger does. He was a member of Jellyfish. I mean, Jellyfish are one of the most beloved cult bands ever, right? They don't last very long, unfortunately. We talk about why in here. Then, Then he goes on to start things like Imperial Drag, another killer band, The Moog Cookbook, another obscure weirdo band that's doing really interesting things. There's TV Eyes. His latest venture is the Licorice Quartet. Now, over the last couple of years, they have put out three EPs of fantastic, kaleidoscopic, Beach Boys meets Queen, meets ELO, meets The Beatles, meets Duran Duran, like melting pots of goodness. Each one of these EPs are fantastic. The latest one, and from what what I understand, the last one, of this series called the Masterpiece series. It it just came out. In fact, Fables just came out last week too. So Threesome Volume 3, the last EP in the series, is now out. Go check it out. So in here, Roger and I talk about all that kind of stuff. He's very, uh, he he gives us some excellent detail on the business side of the music industry. Not just stuff you've heard before, but what it's like to be him 
to try and recreate the music that he has been making all of his career live is very, very difficult. And I understand better than ever now why that is. He also tours with Beck, with Morrissey, and you guys will love this. He's got some great Salt Lake City stories. Anyway, I hope you hear some things in here you're going to like as well because he's the best. He called me from his home in L.A. Okay, so I'm glad we're doing this on Zoom uh, because I was really curious what your background was going to look like. <laughs> Someone like you who immerses themselves so completely in different genres and different eras. I was imagining maybe a lot of lava lamps or, you know... <laughs> Remember back in like Altamont and stuff, you'd have the psychedelic colors that would be flashing everywhere with like oil. What is that called? You know what I'm talking about? Well, yeah, sure. I don't uh, that was, I think it was just called um, overhead oil lights or art. something like that. Okay, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think they did it with like oils and water and, and, uh-huh. and color dye, which of course yeah. is not that involved, uh, but, it, <laughs> but yeah. it got a lot of mileage. Yeah, so you've got this top of the pops from back in like the seventies. It's just glorious. Yeah, this. I mean, this is not only was that show so enjoyable for so long um, and has been running forever, but yeah, I found this picture and I was like, "That that's got to be you know seventy three, seventy four, seventy two, and probably yeah. T Rex was on or something." Yes, so. yes. I uh, do you remember the band the Hoodoo Gurus? Uh huh. Absolutely. Yeah. I love them. And uh, I have Dave Faulkner, their lead singer on here recently. And we were talking and um, they remind you guys, I could imagine being sort of kindred spirits. And he hit the room he was in, looked a little bit like the room that the monkeys are in. Davy Jones is in, in the daydream believer video, you know, like the old test patterns on TV. Yeah. And he had whatever shirt he had on was kind of colorful with like a butterfly collar. And I, uh, so I was I was curious how how it was well, not, I'm I'm dressed down today. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> you, I can caught, tell. you caught me in my um, studio, and I'm 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 juggling all kinds of uh, projects. But uh, I figured I would let the background take care of most of my. Uh, I'm glad you did visuals. I'm glad you did. So I'm curious about something I've always wondered, Roger. I've been a fan since Jellyfish back in the day, and uh, you know you you get compared to Brian Wilson a lot. I, understandably and uh and you and deservedly and obviously him not being to completely interpret the sounds he heard in his ear in his head drove him a little crazy and i wonder if you ever struggle with that same uh, concept because your music is so involved there is so much going on and all of it's wonderful but it's so hyper creative and i wonder if you ever struggle with that same thing of getting what's in here out into the world. Well, I mean, I don't know a, a artist or a ranger who, who doesn't. Uh, and just over the years, the more and more you keep doing it, you get better and better at getting those ideas out <clears throat> and onto a tape or on the computer, whichever it may be. And um, that's just that's just trial and error. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all learn like learning on the job kind of mm-hmm. stuff. You know, Brian had the luxury at a very early age to be in the top studios with top musicians. Mm-hmm. You can hear you can hear on a lot of those um, outtakes from the recordings that we've all been privileged to hear now. Where you can hear him like he's just trying stuff out, mm-hmm. and he's he's, right, he's trying he's trying to articulate mm-hmm. what he's hearing in his heart and his brain, 
but he's only 24, 25, 26 years old, especially when they get to pet sounds. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's just, uh, he, he thinks he knows what's going to sound like, but you don't know until you hear the people play it. Mm-hmm. And today, of course, we have the luxury of samples and you can get very, very close to what the realistic thing is. But it's still all experimentation. Is it easier today with more modern technology and, you know, production sweetening than it was, you know, in the late 80s? We just have more at your disposal and you have it, okay. you have it readily available. You know, and because uh, technology is what it is, you don't have to be in a professional studio with all that equipment. Now, me and a lot of my colleagues still believe that studio environment, tape, mixing console, all the outboard gear, that's still sonically leagues beyond plug-in world. Mm -hmm. That said, every month, plug-in world gets better and better and better. Mm -hmm. Stuff keeps sounding better and better. But at at this point, you know, I have my preferences. But again, I mean, budgets and time, you know, I don't, I'm not swearing off the computer. I, I do a ton there and I, I do what I need to do to get as best a picture I can out. I mean, I am a purist, but I can't afford to be a purist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's exactly and right. I'm not, you know, and I'm not my own engineer. I would, I have to hire all these people. And I, I mean, you'd have to have like a old world mm-hmm. recording budget to do things the way that I would prefer to do them. Yeah. When the I'm licorice, very thankful for all the technology. When the Licorice Quartet get together, do you guys, do you do stuff in one room or is it file sharing from all over the place? I don't know where everyone else is located. Well, it, it was both and we, we really? knew it would have to be both. So we, we were able to get uh, great deals from friends and uh, Adam James, our executive producer, he provided um, some additional foundation funding for us to go into some some decent studios again not not top of the line but they met our needs uh with good engineers um to help us capture the sound and and record drums and guitars and everything properly Mm -hmm. um so a lot of the basics for all the licorice quartet stuff were done that way Mm -hmm. then as you start getting towards the end of the overdub process uh, a lot of that's being done from home on our personal systems of course covid forced that mm-hmm. uh i should say the government's forced it <laughs> so every ep was finished to some degree from our home studios by right. file sharing um, and even come mixing time our wonderful mixer ken sluter uh, i did some of that in person with him he lives in los angeles but a lot of it was done long distance with some software that allows me to hear on my speakers mm-hmm. what he's doing on his speakers which in some ways is cool because I'm used to my speakers. Right? I know I know right away if something is making sense to me, mm-hmm. as opposed to going over his house where he has a ton of great equipment, but I have to get used to his environment. So there's there's pros and cons, and we're just very lucky that technology allowed us to do that at all because we were able to finish all three EPs, including the most recent one. Uh, you know, during COVID, during lockdown, uh, and you know, in a time when probably be better served to not be in company. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I, I'm curious now that you're explaining all this. Uh, threesome volume three is done. You've finished it. You want to listen to it for the first time in all its glory. Do you listen to it on a home system? Do you pop it in the CD player in the car? Do you 
put it into your computer and listen to it on some, where's your favorite, where in an ideal world, where do you love to hear your new music first? <laughs> in an ideal world, I don't own any of the audio systems I'd love to hear my uh, music on. I, that's why I asked because it's so, there's so much going on. It's so orchestrated. So I'm thinking, well, where does yeah. Roger Manning think that this sounds the best? You know, is it a I have stereo? To, I hope I have to hope it's imp- going to impress me and my colleagues on the computer. Literally, the little speakers yeah. on the Mac. Yeah. Uh, the headphones on my phone. Yeah. And then in my car. Okay. And I know that my car stereo system sucks. <laughs> but I'm used to hearing music on it. Uh-huh. Uh, in a perfect world, I would have the leisure time and the extra finances to go literally buy a ten to twenty thousand dollar hi-fi system, mm-hmm. and uh, which I listen to my records on and listen to Licorice Quartet recording. Yeah, yeah. You hear about those people who, when they've finished the master, they immediately want to go for a long drive, or they've you know they've recorded a demo and they want to see what's good about it. And so they pop it in the cassette in the car and they drive around Laurel Canyon for an hour or whatever, you know? And I'm just wondering, what does Roger do when he thinks he's got his stuff nailed down? How does he experience it? That's great. <laughs> so I'm curious about Licorice Quartet. I mean, everything I read about you guys, it sounds as if it was almost accidental that you guys recorded music to put out into the world, which is shocking to me with as great as it is. Um, do you, would you ever tour this? Are you guys going to go put on concerts and recreate? We would absolutely tour it if, uh, it was financially viable to do so. Really? It's just a money and time issue, uh, to recreate this music live properly. We wouldn't embarrass ourselves and not let down the fans. Uh, I mean, it's no different than in the jellyfish days or any of the projects we were involved with. That's what um, I thought. You know, well, you know, so, so jellyfish. We would work up the material and we never thought about reproducing it live because that's not the point. We're like, we're making a sonic sculpture here. We want it to be the best we can make it for our audience. And that's ultimately what was going to win them over. And Okay. Well, now it's time to go out and promote it and play it live. Well, that was fun to do, but it was more challenging and more hard work than it was fun, especially because we gave ourselves the task of doing all that music we heard with just four people. Now, the technology existed. I mean, there were samplers and things, but lots of parts were left out. The biggest challenge, of course, no mystery to you, was recreating all the elaborate vocal harmony stacks, which is why we wanted four people in both versions of the band uh, that could sing and harmonize, which we were lucky enough to find those people uh, who were willing to do the hard work to get it there. So back then, you did all this rearranging for live. You did all this insane amounts of very time intensive uh, logistics and rehearsals for that. You go out on the road and even though you know, it's going to be hard, you're not going to make any money. You're doing it for the sake of the kids, which are the songs, right? You want the world to hear them. You want the songs to have a fighting chance amidst the thousands of other things that are being released that week on MTV and at radio and all that stuff. So it's an investment, right? It's an investment you're willing to do. Uh, and, and like I said, you don't come home with any money in your back pocket, right? There's, 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 there's ways to make money, but you have to start passing a certain sales tier and all that stuff. So you go in the hole again for the, for the sake of, of your art. Yeah. So now you cut to something like Licorice Quartet was much more DIY project. 
uh, there's no record company acting as the loan shark mm-hmm. to finance all this stuff. So it's all out of pocket. So, or favors from friends or whatever. Um, any money that we've made doing all the promotional stuff we've done with fans for the albums, uh, all, all those wonderful exchanges uh, or the, the handful of product we sold, all that money goes back into the next EP, into the mm-hmm. next EP, et cetera. So, you know, paying quality people for quality work, like our mixing engineers and, and so forth. So I'm not complaining. That's that we knew what we were getting into before we signed up, but right. we were eager to get this music out. And then live is no different. Live is you're going to have a certain cost overhead. Yeah. So if you can't justify that in terms of some kind of financial return, so all, all we would need, but this is a pie in the sky, is you need some promoter to approach you or some rich guy to go, I want you to do 10 major markets in the States. You're going to play small clubs that hold 500 to 1,000 people or mm-hmm. 300 to 500 people. Mm-hmm. We can pretty much guarantee with advertising this many people are going to show up in these markets. That's going to be however many ticket sales. It should be X amount of dollars. Okay, so you, you make X amount of dollars every night. Pay back everybody. Mm-hmm. Cover all your bills, hotels, travel, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Your sound man, your crew. Oh, the band's going to take home $1,500 after costs mm-hmm. to split three ways. Mm-hmm. So me, Tim and Eric have to look at each other and go, we're going to make $500 each <laughs> for, for X amount of months of rehearsal, hiring new musicians to help us. Cause we're only a trio. We can't do it all ourselves. You get the point. Totally. Yeah. So it's a bummer yeah. and, and we're not, we're not in our twenties and we're not going to, drive around the country in a van and sleep on people's couches. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's romantic. And, and we're also not a punk band. Right. You can do that with, with a guitar, bass and drums and a singer. Sure. Not, sure. not with what we're trying to pull off. So, so yeah, how do that's you, why ever, that's not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> how do you ever get ahead, Roger? You're painting this picture. I mean, you know, this, no one buys music anymore. Right. So how does Roger Manning get ahead of all of this? How can you, how does the money come in? I freelance and I do other jobs. Do you? have nothing to do with the Licorice Quartet. Okay. Um, for a band or an artist wanting to do what we're talking about, first of all, they're probably going to be younger. And then they play the social media game, which I completely don't understand at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, the music, as my wife who's in management, she always says the music is the what does she call it? It's the trailer to the movie. Mm-hmm. The movie is who you are, what you look like, what is unique about you that you're hawking on social media, what celebrity are you dating, what ailment or, or, or victim consciousness uh, complaint do you have to share with the world, uh, blah, blah, blah. None of it has to do with your art. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I'm a trans bi Korean lesbian that um, is dating this guy who was just in a hit TV series on Netflix. And this is what you're talking about. Yeah. The fact that I sing mm-hmm. and write original music is an added bonus. Cause I'm also modeling for you clothes that show off a plus size models ass. And you know, so it's, it, it's all this, which is not yeah. what I got into the business for to begin with. No. I got in it to, to do original music or help other people do their original music mm-hmm. and then bring that not, not only in a recording uh, package that you could listen to over and over again, but that you'd get that also that unique live experience, which is fun for all. I love performing music live and that, that one-off moment 
that very unique one-off moment that happens at each concert. Uh, again, whether you're a huge, you're Beyonce or some little punk band starting out the club, it's all gratifying. It's all has this great circular audience, artist, audience, artist uh, loop that happens uh, album after album or single after single. And it's, it's wonderful. Um, that whole model, as you know, has changed, just like you said. So it's hard for me to not sound pessimistic and discouraged and, and old fart, you know, Hey, you kids get off my grass about it, but I got spoiled. I mean, I, I entered the business when we were still recording the tape, yeah. <laughs> there weren't even computers. You couldn't yeah. rely on computers to fix anything. Yeah. Um, so you had to show up with some level of talent out of the gate that you had spent years cultivating and developing mm-hmm. to nudge you above the other guy. Who's also very talented, yeah. but maybe he didn't, practice as much or maybe he didn't study the art of songwriting as much or he simply was born with a voice that wasn't as cool as your lead singer's voice whatever it is right and you're in this you're in this fun kind of like healthy competition much in the way sports is mm-hmm. hey we you know we all we all enjoy physically playing basketball with our friends out on the court mm-hmm. but then there's people that have these innate gifts that they've then spent a huge amount of time cultivating it's like that's why they're playing on the pro team and not everybody else. That's right. Yeah. And, and yeah. so then that's how the music business used to be. And then you'd have these financiers, these, these bankers called the record company mm-hmm. and there were indie record companies and major labels. And they all provided the Indies provided a different uh, window Avenue into a world. It was maybe more specialized and unique. And because it was more unique, it wasn't so cookie cutter and uniform. Mm-hmm. The majors were a little more uniform a little more predictable, but you had more financing. Mm-hmm. So depending on the kind of music you did, you, you, but you still had uh, these, these patrons of the arts, if you will, the patrons of the fans, but you had this, uh, you know, the Vatican. <laughs> you had, right. you had these, these kings and queens who would, uh, would, would be the, the financiers, essentially. And you were indebted to them. Mm-hmm. But once you kind of paid back your loan, like any loan, mm-hmm. you, could, you could make some serious money. Yeah. Whatever, what was the, in that environment, how did spilt milk come to be? Because, I mean, I think a lot of people really herald that album, again, deservedly as being a sort of a quirky, culty masterpiece. It's so, again, going back to the orchestration that's, in, that's involved, it sounds so elaborate. It sounds expensive. 
I, ha- I hadn't even thought of this necessarily until you just laid all this out. Did you, were you given carte blanche to be as creative as you wanted to be as freaky as you wanted on that album? Did it um, make its money back? What's the, what was the outcome? <laughs> uh, uh, we were very, very lucky in that um, while belly button didn't sell great, it sold pretty good. So what that means is we never made any money off of it, but we made enough money that people saw that there was definitely worldwide interest and it would probably behoove them to fund a second Mm follow-up. And we actually had business people at the record company uh, who were genuine enthusiasts and fans. Mm -hmm. uh, And that, that, fought for us at business meetings. Some guys were saying, I don't know if we should hang on to these guys. Maybe we should drop them. You know, people like Phil Corderero and Jeff Eroff, Jordan Harris, uh, I mean, a lot of Rick Cram at MTV. Well, I was like, no, 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 no. These guys have something special. Let's hang in there with them. Mm-hmm. So that's how we were able to make spilt milk. Mm-hmm. We almost had carte blanche. I mean, for, okay. for, for all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. they said no to us very few times. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as elaborate, just listen to any record from the late sixties and seventies to early eighties. Yeah. They're all like that. They yeah. all have strings. Yeah. They've all got tons of overdubs and three or four keyboard players, four or five guitarists, background singers, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Again, unless you're a punk band, which the whole point was to deconstruct and move away from that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, even, even like a five piece progressive rock band like Genesis or yes, or something super elaborate, mm-hmm. super that was absolutely steely, steely Dan. I mean, yep. you can't get more top 40 AM radio. And yet the credit lists on those records are miles long, That's right. including the engineering teams and production team, all the people that aren't the musicians mm-hmm. that made it work and come to fruition. So we were just doing what our heroes did that inspired us. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, again, like I said, had people who were willing to say, go for it. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, spilt milk, while it did sell pretty good, it sold, it sold numbers that any new artist coming out now would kill for. Sure. But in the day, you really weren't getting a nice pat on the back unless you were going gold, which was 500,000 copies. Mm-hmm. We kept falling slightly under that, mm-hmm. uh, which, again, on the one hand, was a beautiful thing. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe these many people exactly. who, who, who are mostly enjoying grunge and hip hop at that time mm-hmm. were coming over to our world. Well, we didn't have anything to do with that, mm-hmm. even though even though we we did like rocking out once in a while, and and we liked we liked a certain hip hop artist and grunge artist absolutely, sure. just not the type of music we we're choosing to make. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, spilt milk was, uh, you know, you, you want you want to say thank you to all those people that have had so much faith in you by having the album sell through more. Mm-hmm. Um, the sad the sad fact is that particularly in europe we started getting more and more fans mm. so while while the states kind of stayed the same maybe dropped a little bit on spilt milk europe was doubling and tripling in its our audience size mm. compared to belly button mm-hmm. um and then unfortunately we broke up so who knows what a third record right. would, have, would have yielded if if they even let us make a third record True. they might have dropped us Good point. even if we had stayed together you know, one of the recurring themes, this is something I've always been curious about with you, Roger. One of the recurring themes with you are these different projects that are all sort of short-lived, whether it's Jellyfish or <laughs> Imperial Drag or Moog Cookbook or New Eyes or whatever. And I've never been sure whether 
they each were short-lived because there just wasn't the support to maintain them, whether that be internally, like Jason didn't want to do it or whatever, that no one wanted to stick this out or there wasn't financially, or do you just see each one of these projects as different versions of your personality? And I have an itch to make glam rock, so I'm going to start Imperial Drag. Illuminate is a jam, by the way. I used to put that on all of the mixtapes for girls in college and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Wow. Thank you. Illuminate is one of the songs <laughs> I'm most proud of on that record. Good. You know, that, that was most, I got to give credit where credit's due. That's mostly a uh, concoction of Eric Dover's. His voice on that is just incredible. Hitting it's, those it's stellar. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, so when you're like, I'm in the mood to make a 80s new wave album, let's call Jason and do TV eyes. And then you, it's like, okay, I scratched that itch. Let's move on to something else. Or so could any one of these things have been ongoing had the success been there? Uh, so it's a combination of things. You're, you're right. The, co the common thread is they're all short-lived and that I was involved with them, <laughs> which looks very, very bad. <laughs> but, you know, well, and, and, I, I don't and I'm know perfectly willing, you know, having 
gone to therapy over the years and continue to, I'm very willing to admit my contribution to why they didn't ultimately go on forever. But it's, it's been more, more about the combination of what you just said, uh, finances, artistic differences, life is too short. And, and you, and you sit there going, all right, we've already spent X amount years of my life getting to this release. This, wow. It actually saw, saw the light of day. And then you, you take inventory. It's, it's like any business, right? You go, we reached this marker, but not these two. We've got this much money coming in, but it ideally should be here because our costs are this. Um, me and the bass player getting along fantastically, but not me and the guitar player or, or whatever it is. Um, or, or I'm getting along with everybody, but the drummer and bass player are always fighting. On and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, thankfully there was no... Hey, hey I, I, that's that's the thing. If they made the VH1 behind the music of any of these things, it'd be really boring. Because nobody was sleeping with anybody's wives or girlfriend. There wasn't these crazy downward spirals into right. drug addiction. None of that was happening. It yep. was just practical life shit, mm -hmm. business and personal. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's but very boring. And so, yeah. and you know, it's not, it's not the Fleetwood Mac story. Right. Right. Um, and that's the fact of the matter. And uh, yes, uh, I've enjoyed as one thing was kind of wrapping up, I, you know, I kind of had my sights on what the next possibility could be. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I enjoyed a, a period both with myself and with a partner doing a lot of remixes for people. Uh, Tony Hoffer and I, who's a very successful producer, uh, mixer in these days and has been for a while. He and I were a mixing duo for a while, remixing duo. Had a, had a blast working for people like Jamiroquai, uh, Air, Beck. Um, you know, that's less glamorous than a, a band or something. But I was really, really into doing that for that kind of five, six year window. Yeah, awesome. Um, so and 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 lots and lots of session work now over the years. Been doing that for about twenty five years, and I, that's put me in contact with all kinds of incredible people that I never thought I would cross paths with, like like Morrissey. I, I, I'm you played done, with Morrissey. I've recorded with Morrissey. Wow, on what? I'm, there's like five albums now at this point. I've, I've arranged, I've sung background vocals, and a bunch of keyboards. Th thankfully, he wanted me back, and the producers have hired me back. need to look closer at the liner notes i'm <laughs> still a huge morrissey fan despite the politics yeah but I no he keeps he keeps going wow well wow. And, and and morrissey is morrissey I mean, one of the yeah. reasons we all fell in love with him both lyrically and in interviews is because i'm in my integrity i'll say what i want to say that's it 
Yep. Now he didn't change. Yeah. The culture changed. That's true. The culture said, you're not, you're no longer allowed to have a dissenting opinion about somebody or something. or mm-hmm. That's what he always did. Yeah. He was talking about homosexuality and veganism when you could get shot in certain neighborhoods for saying those things. Good point. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm coming to his defense to a degree sure. because I, it's been very sad to see what the press uh, has has arrived at. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's a different generation of press really than is. the press that helped break the Smiths mm-hmm. and were supportive of him when he went solo. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a tough one out there uh, to do what you do because that's part yeah. of the business, too. Right. That's part. Sure. You is. Know, uh, Jellyfish was very, very excited to do this part of the business and this part of the business. And when it came to videos and stuff, we were like, I haven't really studied that. I don't, hmm, I wish I, I wish I could uh-huh. offer more at those meetings, yeah. you know, or, or um, what's another good example? Uh, well, just, just understanding finances in the record business and record and publishing, where you can talk intelligently to your manager, to your lawyers, to record company, because it's not that hard. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's not taught in music school. At least it wasn't or, or it's not, it's not um, uh, what musicians grow up talking about. They talk about gear and how to use it and cool chord and musical ideas because that's more right. fun. Who wants to deal with the business side? But the business side will screw you because it will take advantage of you if you're not you know, worldly wise. True. Um, okay. One other thing I wanted to, I had Lyle Workman on here last year, such a good guy. And we talked about his involvement in spilt milk and then also transitioning to playing with Beck. Uh-huh. Do you still play with Beck? What was the, I don't remember this. Like I said, this was about a year ago when I talked to Lyle, how, how did that happen? How did you, how did you become part of Beck's backing band and how long did that last? Was he just a big jellyfish fan? No, not at all. Oh. <laughs> in fact, I don't even think he knew about jellyfish. Really? Uh, I'm pretty sure he knew about mood cookbook. Okay. And there were other people, there were some colleagues of his that I think were aware of Jellyfish and Mood Cookbook. Uh, So as Imperial Drag was breaking up, well, we had broken up and I was literally like, I'm, I'm about to turn 31 and I'm, these bands are killing me. Mm -hmm. I'm in, I'm investing my heart and soul in every waking hour and I'm getting original music realized. And that's the good part. And everything else about this life and these projects is destroying me. I was, ha- I was having a nervous breakdown. I didn't know that's what it was. And so part of me felt that my skills would be best served, maybe supporting somebody else who was already over so many of these were hurdles and already had a career that was flourishing and moving forward. And there were a handful of artists in this was 97, a handful of artists that I was excited about. And one of them was Beck. Mm-hmm. I said, gosh, it'd be really great if, and play keywords for someone like this or someone like this. And there weren't very, weren't very many. So I was like, I'm not leaving myself many options. I don't, I don't like most of what's happening right now, but there are certainly stuff that I'm excited about. Uh, I knew a couple engineers that he had worked with. I also had known a childhood friend he'd grown up with or, or more that he had spent a lot of his high school years with uh, that I literally met through collecting vintage keyboards and stuff, just like, you know, freaks in LA who yeah. were kind of drawn yes. to each other. Like, oh yeah, I, I used to be in a band with Beck before he, he became famous and all this stuff. And so I was really putting out the word, mm-hmm. the intentionality to the universe, if you will. But he already had a keyboard player. Mm-hmm. 
It wasn't like I was like, I'm going to call him up and say, you need keyboards. He already had a guy. And I actually saw them live. And I was like, that band he's put together is awesome, including this keyboard player who I wish was me. But that guy is perfect for what he's got going on. Right. And uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, during one of the middle of his Odelay promo tour, uh, they'd had a falling out. I had no idea what the deal was behind that. But now before they were about to go to Australia for three weeks, they had a vacancy to fill. And so-and-so knew somebody, knew somebody, somebody, and that's how they got my number. And the bass player called me and said, here's what's going on. Are you interested? And I'm like, you don't know how interested I am. What, what do I need to do? And he said, first of all, you can't bring in your own gear. You have to play the equipment we have for you because the set's already ready to go. Yeah. Everybody knows what that's about. Yeah. So you have to learn 30, 30 some odd songs on somebody else's equipment. We need you to come in and audition in three days. And then we leave, we leave for Australia the next week. So I was like, okay, you got what you wanted. <laughs> got what I wanted. Yep. Let's make this happen. Yeah. And fortunately it was just, you know, Again, it was like like-minded people, um, and uh, as well as that tour went for all of us, and I had the time of my life. Couldn't have been a better family of people. That was the end of his touring schedule for that for that album. So it's kind of like, hey, this was fun. Yeah. Now what? Right. Well, unbeknownst to me, he was already planning music for uh, the album that we call Mutations. Um, and about a month later, he said, I did the last album with the Dust Brothers, which is me and them and the computer. But I want to do this next record with more human beings, yeah. more in a traditional organic way, because the songs are more acoustic based. Right. Thank God. Because mm. he wanted a keyboard player. He wanted a drummer. He wanted a bass. And, and that's what we did. So a, a group of about four or five of us made that record with him as our that's leader. Great. streets, the reek of tropical charms, the embassies, lying hideous shards where tourists snore and decay. And when they dance in a reptile blaze, you wear a mask, an equatorial haze into the past, a colonial maze where there's no more confetti to throw. You wouldn't know what to say to yourself, love is a poverty you couldn't sell. Misery waits in the hotels to be a victim. You're out of luck, you're singing funeral songs to the studs. They're anabolic and bronze, they seem to strut. And they're millennial fogs till they fall down in the flames. You wouldn't know what to say to yourself. Love is a poverty you couldn't sell. Misery waits in big hotels to be loved with them. Oh, and now you've had your fun under a name. Yes. Oh, it was, it was, it was, it, to this day, it's one of the most magical recording experiences in my life. Yes. Uh, and that, that led to another four or five albums at that time with tours. And then, Mid 2000, 
uh, I needed to get off the road for a variety of reasons that I won't bore you with. And it had nothing to do with him or the band. Um, it was like, what's going on in my life personally and as an artist and I'm at what age I'm at and what goals do I want to achieve still, blah, blah, blah. So it was incompatible. Cut to 2011. My life had changed after not being on the road. His bands and his life had changed. He had actually taken a break for a while. He called me back up and a bunch of the people from that original band. And he said, what are you guys doing? So since 2011, I've been with him every year in some capacity, Good either recording, you. touring, or just touring. What Good for you, man. And we're and now we're still saying, what does 2022, 23 look like? Yeah. We've done some recording, yes. but touring is a little more challenging because of COVID yes. and all that stuff. Good. I'm so glad to hear that because someone as amazing as you are, as you are at making your own music <laughs> deserves, as we've established here, to have some kind of a steady gig that allows you to, <laughs> you know, and not just fade in the background. I mean, you could play with anybody. Beck is the one who wants you on his team. That's huge. I'm so glad to hear that. So glad. It, it, uh, I, yeah. So many blessings. And then yes. so Lyle, Lyle, when we were getting ready to, tour mutations uh the guitarist beck had had left for different reasons um and so, so had the drummer the, the band was getting reshuffled mm -hmm. so lyle's name came up to audition oh and that's obviously how that he, he got the yep. audition <laughs> got it got it um okay i want to we should talk about the new some of the new songs um there's a couple of them that i absolutely love one of them in particular fortunately which i think was the first single off of it I, I can't stop thinking about, I've got a secret, no one really goes to hell. such a provocative line and every time you sit every every time you don't sing that song every time that is sung it just really strikes me what went into the writing of that song and it's specifically that way of thinking <laughs> well you're interviewing the wrong guy because um that is the one song of the uh -huh. 12 that was co-written by adam james who was the gentleman i told you about earlier who mm -hmm. we've known him for a while right we've worked with him on different things here and there uh, but he would, he was interested in entering a business agreement with us to help fund this project. If we were interested in exploring, uh, this song, which actually he, he and I had, had dabbled and worked with, uh, for his solo works years before Licorice Quartet, mm. but it was a song that went very well. And that solo album never happened for him. So we had this song that we both felt was solid mm -hmm. and he said, Hey, how about, 
resurrecting that song for the Licorice Quartet oh. in this kind of business exchange. Okay. Eric and Tim agreed they felt the song was worth exploring. So then the song got further massaged. It got massaged lyrically. It certainly got massaged musically with Tim and Eric's input. And you have the version that you now hear. But the lyric was mostly a construct of Adam and Tim. And Tim. Uh, so I, I had nothing to do with that lyric. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I, I can't I can't answer it. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's, I wonder. I mean, I, I know that not everyone is involved in the songwriting of every single song. But I am imagining either people in a room coming up with these lines or files being shared and Roger sitting there. Wow. No one really goes to hell. That's a really interesting idea. What, what sparked that? But you, you guys don't dissect the lyrics. I, I'm not much of a lyric guy either, but that one in particular really uh, sticks out to me. I did want to ask you about new days too, because that's one of, that's one of your best vocal performances I got to say one of my favorite songs I think you've ever been involved in. I, yeah, I do. I like it. I love everything you do. I like it when it gets a little, I think you're really good at going acoustic sometimes like mm. bluebirds blue or glutton for sympathy, sympathy. When you dial it back, it's just as beautiful and lush as it is when you dial it up. Tell Thank me you. about new days. Wow. New days, new days. Uh, so I wrote the bulk of the music. Okay. With help from Tim and Eric. And Eric, Eric wrote the lyric almost entirely. If I, I'm pretty sure Eric wrote the lyric entirely. Okay. So we were kind of rekindling our imperial drag relationship. Well, he, he did that a lot. He wrote a lot of lyrics to music I brought in that I was confident about. Mm -hmm. Frankly, because he was the lead singer and going to sing it. Mm -hmm. And it's always better when the lead singer writes their own lyrics. It's just... Uh, it's just more uh, of their personality and presence comes into that performance. Mm -hmm. uh, but Eric's, Eric's just, he's quite fast and quite skilled. And every time you think he's run out of ideas, he'll go into some territory. Like, where's that coming from? <laughs> which is, it's just fantastic. He doesn't yeah. repeat himself a lot. Yeah. Uh, so he ran with New Days. So New Days, musically, that was a song, the bulk of that idea I wrote way back mm -hmm. during Imperial Draft. Mm. Uh, but because of the nature and feel of the song, we didn't feel it was worth uh, developing as part of the wheelhouse of material. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely believed in the idea. 
played it for the guys, and then we finished it together because they thankfully liked it. That's what that's about. Mm. Um, I knew I knew that I was going to try to pull off the vocal I heard in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, if I hear something in my head on keyboard and I can't play it, I know it's just going to take me a few hours. I'll work through it, study, 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 practice, practice. Right. I've got it. Mm-hmm. Vocally, you're born with the voice you've got. Mm-hmm. You can you can want to sound like Lennon, McCartney, Brian Wilson, Freddie Mercury until you're blue in the face. No no amount of practice is going to get you there. Mm-hmm. The, all the practice is going to do is maximize the abilities of your own natural voice. Mm-hmm. So I I have a very much a, a love-hate relationship with my voice because often, particularly if I don't feel it's rising to the occasion, mm-hmm. it's selling the song short, right? It, it's, mm-hmm. no, it's no different than, hey, I want a guitar solo here. And you yeah. bring in 10 amazing guitar players and they're not quite getting it. They're great. But it's just like, ah, it's not quite there. They played a great uh, solo, but the sound's wrong. Mm-hmm. The sound should be screaming and the, and the sound was wimpy and, yeah. you know, it's all that, but you're stuck with your voice. Yeah. So I'm very thankful that you're so complimentary about oh, my I execution. Love it. Oh, I, yeah. I, a, a lot of goals, a lot of things that I aspired to for that performance, uh-huh. I think I mostly got them. So yes, I, did. You know, I, I was happy to release that to the public and i'm not fishing for compliments i'm just saying it was fucking murderous you know (laughs) uh, just just getting the music because the music is very um well it has a very kind of 60s movie Uh uh, vibe to it and that's not that also has a whole artistry to it you don't just roll out of bed and do that in the morning yeah um uh and so we knew what we wanted for that we spent a lot of time sculpting it it has real strings on it in places and we knew the harmonies were going to be very rich, like the mamas and papas or, or any of those incredible you know, uh, fifth dimension, mm-hmm. any of those incredible uh, 60s vocal groups. Mm-hmm. We wanted to capture that essence. And I knew I knew we had the vocal power to do it. But again, easier said than done. Yeah. So uh, it was important to me that the vocal, the lead vocal. Uh, you got it. You know, be the finishing touch. Well, you nailed it. Um, another one of the so- Licorice Quartet songs that I love is The Dream That Took Me Over. Climb with you away into the night. The dream that took me
And every time I hear that, it sounds to me like a respectful homage to Duran Duran. <laughs> and I wonder if that was, you know, you're known prim- you're known so much for for being influenced by the Beach Boys and Queen and that kind of stuff. But I hear 80s more like the TVI stuff. Is that, am I onto something there? Were you was it intentional yeah. to be a Yeah, I mean, you know, every listener's kind? opinion is subjective, right? They're going to hear what they hear. Mm-hmm. Um that song to the three of us Again, we theorize and talk. Again, that, that idea mostly came from Eric. Mm. So he had, in certain places, he had a big vision for it. In other places, he didn't. He's like, I, you know, I'm open to discussion here. Let's figure out what. So we would all philosophize. And, and we did feel that kind of like a 70s disco, 80s, Euro wave vibe was going to be beneficial to it. So you set off in those kind of directions with that, with that, uh, with those colors in mind, with that, uh, you know, with the, the, uh, the palette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's just trial and error and we arrived where we arrived. I mean, sure. There's, there's, yeah, there's some Durani moments in there, mm-hmm. um, that we experimented with and they, they stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering too, with you, Roger, um, given how much of your music is feels like a tribute to something, a, like I said, a genre, a time and place, how do you know within yourself whether what you're doing is a tribute versus a parody? Because a parody could be <laughs> tossed off as a gimmick or laugh. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. this is a novelty. It's cute once and that's it. But yours tends to be escalated past that. How do you know within you that you've gone, that you've aspired to more and you've achieved it rather than a parody. Well, thank you for noticing. I'm glad that the effect it's had on you. Absolutely. Uh, our audience seems to be in agreement with you. Good. Thankfully. Yeah. Um, again, not only with Liquor's Quartet, but the last all of years. it, your whole career. And it's very, very conscious. Good. So you remember the Dukes of Stratosphere by any chance? Mm-hmm. XTC, sure. I'm sure they were cracking each other up in the studio when they would try something out that was intentionally trying to mimic some of their 60s heroes. Mm-hmm. But nobody's laughing at those records. No. Because the main, the main reason, or for me, the main reason, is the songs. Yeah. So the songs on their own, if you just strum them on an acoustic guitar and sang them, play them on piano, raw, mm-hmm. they are solid. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're supposed to make you laugh, that the lyric is intentionally wacky or comedic, or there's a, like Elvis Costello will do this all the time. He'll put a joke within the mm-hmm. lyric mm-hmm. and you laugh. Well, again, that's intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, ideally that would not sabotage the song. That wouldn't lessen the song for you. It would just be wry and, and um, sarcastic, uh, or, you know, or dark humor or something would be within that but it's mostly coming from the lyric musically anything we get inspired by is just that it's it's we're being inspired so we're in gratitude to those artists that came before us and made us want to do any of this stuff at all so it's it's, ultimately it's homage yeah but also our radar is so finely tuned after doing this for so many years again at least to me it is where an idea will be brought up and people, look, I don't care. 
you know, 25 years of session work, everybody does this. The producer, the artist goes, what about something like this? What about something off of Bowie's low album? If we went for something like that, where they use this Mellotron and then a saxophone comes in. Everybody's constantly referencing because that's the starting point. Now, that idea, at the end of the day, may get so far away from the, the Bowie low album. Okay, as long as the artist arrives at the idea they feel is working. Or it could, it could be, um, it could hearken more to that Bowie low reference mm -hmm. to the point where uh, you better be careful. You're now you're stealing. Right. Now, now it's full on plagiarism. Right. But we're so aware of that. Okay. Wow. If, we, if we're that close, well then one, we can't use the idea mm -hmm. or we mess it up so much. It's going to be indistinguishable from, right. I mean, this is the whole sampling argument. And sure, obviously, sure. obviously we're not sampling, mm -hmm. but we're also very skilled and trained that we are fascinated by what those ingredients were. And now we typically, it's hard to stump us and people who've been doing it this long. Mm -hmm. You know what those ingredients are and how to make them work for you, ideally. But what yeah. you can't do and what people screw up doing all the time is they try to put a square peg through a round hole. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, this has to work because it worked on Bowie Low. Mm -hmm. No, no, it doesn't. That was a different song he wrote. Yeah. And they had an arrangement idea that works for them and it works for you as a listener. You've written a different song. Mm -hmm. So you can't cram it down. You can't, the, the song evolves to be what it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's no mystery. We have fun with some of these arrangement strategies of yesteryear. Mm -hmm. Frankly, it's, it's fun and challenge in the challenge of, of, you know, we know we want a lush vocal here. Can we, with our own voices and our own arranging ability, create a lush vocal that is as good at, rises the occasion, uh, fulfills and serves the same purposes that this lush Beach Boys vocal did on this song? Mm -hmm. That's really it. Mm -hmm. And then if somebody raises a flag and going, um, that's a little close, well, th then we have a band meeting. Right. And it's probably going to get vetoed right. because... Well, why would you want to do that anyway? Yeah, you're just you want to try to the joy of the jigsaw puzzle is to come up with your own original version, right? That doesn't just yep. use copy and paste theirs. That's right. That's right. I actually had Dave Gregory from XTC on here a few years ago, and it oh, was wow. very it was very clear that he held the Duke's material in such esteem, higher pro like it was more considering the drama in that band. He yeah. had more fun being loose on the Duke material than he did on his own XTC material. It was very the interviews clear. I've, uh, the interviews I spent with him, that's the same impression I got. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's because all three of them and their producer said, this, nobody's going to hear this record. Right. We're, we're doing this. We're doing this for the love of it. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what jazz musicians do, mm -hmm. but instead of it being jazz, their love was for that incredible psych pop that inspired yeah. them as, as, as young teenage adolescents or whatever. You know? Yeah. That's it. Uh, okay. Last question. Um, well, two last questions. Real quick. Have you ever played Salt Lake City? Oh, many times. I, I, I just played there, actually. Really? With Beck? I, uh, no, I actually was I just on the road with Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains. Really? Whoa. He's been okay. out. He, he did a solo album in 2018, 19. Yeah. And was going to promote it like everybody else in 2020. Yeah. And that all got shut down. So he's been out promoting again. Um, right. and, uh, I did not play on the record. He didn't 
know me. There's a, a, a great keyboard player playing on the record. And then I got the call to uh, see if I was available to accompany him on the road. I had no idea. So I'm in Denver, but I'm originally from Salt Lake City. And oh. inevitably, whenever I ask someone if they've played Salt Lake City, they have some crazy story about something. Uh, the groupies <laughs> being especially wild. The drugs are good. The church influenced them some way or somehow. Do you have any crazy Salt Lake City story? No, because all the times I've gone through Salt Lake City, I was in a committed relationship. Okay. Good um, <laughs> because, That'll do it. <laughs> because I, I too have heard the same stories. Yeah, yeah. And it's, look, the whole, the whole, for, for, for all the upsides, and I do believe there were upsides to this country that we still benefit from being founded on a Judeo-Christian foundation to hold our philosophical conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big organized religion fan. I'm just saying. Sure. Some stuff it. got put in place and it comes from the enlightenment, which is a Judeo-Christian foundational thing. Mm-hmm. For as good as that is, the country also is suffering from colossal aspects of repression, religious repression and, and, and collective guilt. Okay. Mm-hmm. Salt Lake and its Mormon roots is no different. Mm-hmm. In fact, you could argue it's more repressive. So in the last 30 years, I've been touring there. Oh yeah. The rumor is, <laughs> Just wait till you get to Salt Lake because the guys and girls are fucking crazy because they're, they, they, they have a cork that just keeps getting pushed down and that cork is ready to pop. And if you're the right place at the right time, the cork will, will pop in your company, so to speak. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that answers your question. You probably, I know I'm not the only guy you've heard that from. No. In fact, um, every time I bring it up, I get an answer like yours. Yours is one of the best. And I've started just recently asking anyone in, who comes on generally if they've ever passed through, because they almost all have some kind of an opinion like yours. And the, it's the, just the, listeners are starting to enjoy it. The, you know, the funny story is um, a lot of what I enjoyed doing in my certainly my early years of traveling was um, in the early 90s, mid 90s. Uh, thrift stores were still mm. very, very full. Mm-hmm. Uh, the general public had not discovered how many collectibles you could find at thrift stores, vintage instruments, vinyl, like none of these collectible trends that those, whole, uh, everything that eBay shot in the stratosphere, that was not in the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. So people in the know, like me and my friends and my, my girlfriend at the time, we would be in thrift stores as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, on my day off in Seattle, I had one question for the record company representative. Mm-hmm. I said, where's the thrift store map? I want to rent a car. I'll see you guys later. That's a lot of how I'd spend my, my downtime on the road. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember there are Mormon uh, sponsored industries. Yep. That's it. Yep. And now they're in other States, mm. but the headquarters, I mean, yeah. it's, it's all Salt Lake. Yeah. So I remember Salt Lake, particularly my first few tours is like, Oh my God, I've hit the thrift store Mecca and I'm just coming back. My rental car is full of bags of shit. <laughs> And I'm trying to like figure out where I'm going to squeeze it in the van. Or I remember one time we had a bus and on the bus, there's usually three bays underneath the bus, which are quite roomy. Uh-huh. It's supposed to be for luggage. So there was one bay because we were only a four piece band. There was one bay that was mostly open uh-huh. by the end of the tour. I'd completely filled that bay with my crap. Oh my God. And so, so I always looked forward to Salt Lake and for some yeah. reason, Ohio. Like oh, Ohio huh. and Utah had the best thrift stores. Deseret Industries. That's Utah's yep. thrift store. That's the Mormon thrift store. Yep. Man. 
Roger, you gave me a lot of good stuff. Thank you so much. I think you are a musical genius. Genius. You're too kind. Thank you, sir. I I mean it with my whole heart and soul. Thank Thank you for for everything you put out there. You know, people like you are the way a lot of this stuff gets through the Underground Railroad, so to speak. Uh, I'm because, just trying to do my part. What's definitely happening now is not only our pa- our parents introducing their kids to jellyfish, par- parents who were you know in college when we came out and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful thing. But uh, the right communities are turning on college students, people in their twenties to us because the the regular avenues of MTV and radio, or whatever, are not available to them to to help discover this. Yeah. And these are kids who already know who the Beatles are. Mm-hmm. And like, wait, there were other bands mm-hmm. that, that had those ingredients to them. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to hear more of that. Yeah. You know, so uh, occasionally once a month, I'll get some email from somebody in Israel or, you know, Canada or whatever. It's like just getting turned on to your music now. That's great. Yeah. I love this licorice quartetti pee. Then somebody said, well, then you have to go listen to Imperial Drag and, and Spilt Milk. You know, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It is. You're a genius. In fact, here's my water bottle. I don't know if you can see, but I got a couple licorice quartet stickers. Uh, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Roger Manning Jr. Wasn't that one awesome too? Those Salt Lake stories are the best. I'm going to try and remember to ask this question to pretty much everybody and just see what they say. Everybody has, has a super weird story about Salt Lake City, but I loved his take on the business side of everything and Morrissey and Beck and the new music he makes, and the sounds he hears in his head, and why so many of these fantastic bands and projects he started were sort of short-lived. I understand now why that is. Um, I want to close it out with another song from the Licorice Quartet. This one is Bluebirds Blues, and it's off the Threesome Volume 1 EP from 2020. Again, all three are out there. Stream them, buy them, Spotify them, whatever you're going to do, because they're all amazing. And as I said earlier... We have that copy of Fables in a Foreign Land from John Doe, free to give away to any and all Patreon supporters. Um, It's two bucks a month, and you can win anything I ever give away, okay? So uh, sign up for that. The link is in the show notes, and uh, I'll be pulling a winner on Sunday, all right? I think that's it for this week. I don't think we have any uh, bonus material coming out, all right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.
can't return this wedding ring. Love's not a language that I learned to speak in my school. Sang, my love's waiting in the wings for every.